All right. Well, officially, hello, everyone. Bonjour tout le monde and welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for today's roundtable conversation on representation, identity, and experience, exploring the potentials and pitfalls of social media presence for Muslim women. To help situate you, we are streaming on YouTube live from Concordia University's Fourth Space, which is located on unceded indigenous lands here in Jotjake, Montreal. As caretakers for the lands and waters that we are meeting on today, we'd like to extend our gratitude to the Kinyakahaga Nation for their teachings about the earth and our relations. At Fourth Space, we work daily with our university community to mobilize knowledge by co-creating activities that invite Concordians together with external partners and audience members, such as yourselves joining us here today on Zoom or in person, um, so that we might examine the research questions and the, the projects and development here across the university. Importantly, Fourth Space collaborates with public scholars to find engaging ways to connect people to their ongoing research. So we're so pleased to welcome doctoral candidate in religion, Arwa Hussein, and her guests in today for this conversation. Okay, that's it for me. Welcome, Arwa. So, yes. Good evening, everyone. My name is Arwa Hussein, and I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Religions and Cultures and one of Concordia's 2022-23 public scholars. First of all, thank you all for being here today for my Spotlight event. I have here with me four panelists whose introductions we'll be making shortly. Um, so just to introduce kind of what we're talking about here today. Within religion and theology, men have dominated the power of voice to the detriment of women and others. Social media has enabled the creation of spaces where women can reclaim these voices. For Muslim women in particular, social media has allowed for responses to their double silencing by Muslim patriarchal traditions and white savior feminism. Muslim women have used these public avenues to engage critically with issues of identity, representation, and political discourses. They also use these spaces to build community and support forums to talk about issues relevant to their lives. Muslim women on social media also face the burden of representation. Their presence on social media is hyper-focused on the hijab and religion, which leads to stereotypical representations and obscures the lived complexity of their lives. They are also points of vulnerability for women in general who disproportionately face criticism and online abuse. In this discussion today, we talk about these issues and the potentials and pitfalls that an online presence poses for Muslim women in particular. First, I would like to invite my participants to introduce themselves, and if you could also elaborate a little on your own engagement with social media, whether through research or personal experience. Um, we will go around the table, I think. Let's start with, this is Dr. Krista Riley. Yeah, thanks so much, Arma, and thanks for, for having me here. Um, it is really fun to be back at Concordia. I finished my PhD here in 2016. Um, and, and yeah, it's really lovely to be back and to be on this panel with um, such a wonderful group of people. Um, maybe I'll, I'll start actually by talking about um, the connection of my, my PhD research to 
uh, to this topic, um, I focused on uh, what feels now like a really ancient form of digital media, which was blogging. Um, and it's not what we tend to think of now when we think of social media. We're often focusing on uh, something like Twitter or Facebook or, or Instagram, uh, that kind of thing. Um, but I would argue that, especially at the time, and, and my focus was around uh, 2008 to 2016 or so, um, blogs were being used in a really social way, not all of them, but the, the ones that I look at, um, in a way that was really doing a lot to build community, to, uh, to create a lot of um, conversation and back and forth, especially in the, in the comment section. Um, and I was looking at, at blogs written by Muslim feminists and the ways that discussions about gender and bodies and sexuality were happening online, and we'll get to that more. Uh, I'm also the former editor-in-chief of Muslim Media Watch, which was a blog looking at media representations of Muslim women um, and was involved with that uh, for many years. Um, and that also was a space where there was a lot of community built through that. So, um, so as, I, as I'm thinking about social media and my experiences there, those are the two main areas that I'm focusing on um, in, in really kind of thinking about um, how, are, how are people, how are Muslim women, especially in, on social media, um, looking at the ways that they're being represented both from within Muslim communities and from outside of that and, and what kinds of ways are people uh, building community around it and also pushing back when that's needed. So I'm Farya Nakfi Mohammed. I'm a journalist um, by training. I've actually studied journalism and communications right here at Concordia. So I'm always very pleased to be back. So thank you for having me. Um, a little bit about me. So I am a television journalist with City News Montreal. I'm a columnist with the Montreal Gazette and I'm a blogger. So my blog is actually what got me started in doing what I do now. So I, tr I studied journalism and communications, and at the time, there was nobody who looked like me working in mainstream media. And so I wasn't sure if I would ever work in, social, in mainstream media, despite being told that I had a gift and I, I had a talent. And so I decided to launch my blog because I figured I love to write and I love to share. So I'm going to launch my blog. And very quickly, I taught myself how to use social media, the earlier days of Twitter, uh, Facebook, and when these things were, and before Instagram had video, when uh, it was back in, 2011, in 2011, I would say. And so social media is exactly how I got myself out there, was by leveraging social media, sharing my blog posts on social media. And ironically, it was my blog that actually got me the current jobs that I have right now, because I was followed by media outlets. Um, I was invited on television and radio and locally, nationally, internationally. And at a time when there was no woman wearing a hijab on television, um, I would be invited on and things simple as, you know, how to mic someone who wears a hijab. Um, but I use social media to really break those barriers and share my voice and share my story and share my views. And it's something I continue to use now. Um, has it always been smooth sailing? Absolutely not. Um, there is a lot that I have to share in this conversation, 
but I'm very passionate about what it is that I do. Uh, but I'm also very passionate about connecting with people on social media. So it, it varies. There's times when I've used Facebook more. There's times where I've used Twitter more. Um, these days, I'm probably using Instagram more. But by doing this, I'm able to connect with now our viewers, my readers. Um, but I probably wouldn't be where I am doing exactly what I'm doing uh, were it not for social media. Thank you, uh, Arwa and uh, Concordia for inviting uh, me to participate in this. I'm Nusa Jaffrey. I'm with the Canadian Council of Muslim Women. And um, my first encounter with social media was when everybody was joining Facebook, uh, especially family members. And I remember going to a, a youth conference in Turkey where there were youth, Muslim youth from around the world uh, assembled in Turkey and they wanted to connect. I was, I was already really old at that time you know, compared to all the other young folks that were there. So I said, well, I'm not very good. I'm a Luddite. I don't really like technology. But they said, no, we want to connect with you. So I, I actually um, did uh, start using Facebook. And if you ever go on my Facebook page, which doesn't have much on it anymore, um, I chose uh, a symbol of the, the part of Turkey that we had visited. And it's basically an olive branch. So for me, olives and olive, olive branches constitute peace. And my purpose in joining uh, Facebook was really to live peaceably with, with everyone and connect with everyone in that way. Uh, but the more I used it and the more I shared, you know, articles and so on, I, I didn't like sharing personal photos. I never did because I hate being uh, photographed. Um, but I loved looking at pictures of, you know, cousins, my grandchildren, my daughter, uh, different phases of their lives. Um, but, you know, when uh, Donald Trump got elected, I stopped using Facebook personally. I do not post anything on Facebook anymore. I'm not sure whether it serves any purpose at a personal level, but I truly was disgusted with the role that Facebook played uh, in the election of Donald Trump. Um, and I did join Twitter as well, but I joined it during the Green Revolution in Iran just to follow what was going on because it was very exciting. There was so much activity on Twitter that I wanted to see what was going on because we hear so little uh, from things that happen on the ground in Iran. Recently, we've seen more activity, but you know that's why I joined Twitter. But then, you know, I used to post occasionally and I would use it once in a while. Uh, I never became a very active user, even though people said, oh, for you should use it for work. You should use this and that. And I didn't. But then again, when Donald Trump got elected, I swore that I will never use Twitter again. However, in the work that we do at CCMW, social media um, are a very critical tool for us to communicate what we're doing. Uh, and it. It has everything to do with representation and identity and giving voice to Muslim women. So we use um, all of the platforms that are commonly uh, available. Um, you know, we, we have posted things on Facebook, Twitter. We are gaining ground on LinkedIn. Uh, 
Um, Instagram is one of our favorite places to post what's going on at CCMW. If you've ever been to our Instagram page, you will see what I'm talking about when, I, when we discussed representation and the messaging. And one of the key reasons for our use of social media for the organization is really to put out counter narratives to all the negative things that we see about Islam, about Muslim women, about our representation, um, and, and how people talk about us as though we are objects. And the only identification we seem to have is what we wear. But what we want to enlighten people with is a Muslim woman is way, way more than what she wears. You know, clothes do not make the woman, please. Um, there's a lot more to us than, than that. So that's how we use it today. And the way I use social media is I actually go and monitor what's going on on our platforms. How are people responding to them? Um, the newer ones like TikTok and Snapchat, uh, we're just learning how to use them. One of our uh, recent um, campaigns really got traction on TikTok. But again, I'm very comfortable with it personally because you know it exposes so much of yourself. Um, however, I think it's a great platform for promoting those positive images, positive messages, the counter narratives that we need to tell our own stories. Thanks so much uh, for inviting us, Arwa. Um, my name is Idil Issa. Um, I wear several hats. Uh, one of those hats would be a co-founder of Mouvement Montréal, a municipal political party in Montreal. Um, another hat that I wear is as founder of FAMCOR, Femme Musulmane Contre le Racisme, which was an informal grassroots network of Muslim women in Quebec. Um, and we specifically mobilized in opposition to Bill 21. Um, and that was primarily on social media. So my attitude towards social media is, I would say, for the most part, utilitarian. Um, I definitely have a love-hate relationship personally with social media. Um, it is um, sort of a, a medium that makes the intimate public, um, which is a little bit, uh, you know, if you're an introvert, it can be a, a little bit difficult. Um, but um, it's 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 useful, you know. There's no denying that it's very useful. Um, it's it was useful for me when I was fighting against Bill 21 to mobilize um, women against the bill. I was able to connect with uh, women across the province. Um, we were able to share uh, updates with each other. We were able to uh, share interview requests with each other. Uh, we were able to coordinate for protests together. So there's no denying that it's it's quite useful. Um, but as a Muslim woman, you know, I think that um, you know our representation is hotly contested, and I think adding social media to that whole dynamic is is quite. Um, it's it's something to be carefully considered because, um, you know, the hijab, for example, has been used in um, during conflicts as a, a way to protest against colonizers, or it has been used by colonizers to um, to really oppress um, a local population. So, the representation of Muslim women is something that is is um, is already rife with a lot of of um it's, it's already a battleground so social media i think um is is just one way of amplifying that 
Um, and so that's something to be considered for sure. Um, but yeah, you know, social media, I think uh, it's, it's a powerful tool, but it's also, um, it's, it's, there's a lot of pitfalls for Muslim women in terms of making sure that they're represented in a way that they feel um, is in accordance with, with their truth and, and their reality. So uh, just I'll, I'll leave my opening remarks at that. Thank you so much, Adil, Nazahat, Fariha, and Krista. Um, so I'm just going to put kind of my first question out there, and please feel free to take it up. So as you've all talked about it and you've touched on aspects of this question already, is, is there potential in these spaces or for you or for other Muslim women, do they merely serve as an extension of offline activities, you know, such as sharing about daily lives, accomplishments, organizing, or activism. Um, so thoughts on that? I will put I'll jump right in here. Um, so I use social media a lot. Um, I use it, it's evolved over the years. So I started using social media at first to share my blog posts, um, share pictures of my kids when they were younger. Um, and then that evolved. And so now I'll use it to, similar to what Adil was saying, to connect and to mobilize with other people, whether they're, they're people that I'm looking to interview or learn from or learn about conflicts or different parts in the world. Um, but social media has so much potential. And really, I think that it is what you make of it. So when people are, um, for example, there's people who decide who have made entire careers out of social media, right? You have the influencers who have, you know, are making, you know, six, seven figure salaries from going on on Instagram and, you know, doing their makeup, um, amongst other things. So there's people who have really dedicated their lives to our social media. Then there's other professionals who have used it to network LinkedIn, for example, right? Twitter. Um, and then there are some individuals like myself where I'm a little bit of a hybrid model in which in which I'm on television, I'm writing for traditional for the Montreal Gazette, but I'm sharing my content on social media. And this is something that several of the Montreal media, Anglophone media um, journalists, uh, we're, we're quite tight knit and we're a small group, um, have commented on. They're like, Faria, there's nobody else that does what you're doing in terms of sharing your content on social media. And I said, well, why not? It's just another way for people to capture their information a lot of us are not sitting at home at six o'clock watching the news as when I was growing up. Um, you know, I, I'm on television. I don't even have cable myself. I capture everything online. Um, so that's the beauty. There's so much power to social media, but ultimately it's how it's used. So I, I don't want to just pretend like everything is wonderful and rosy all the time. I've had online abuse. I've had threats. I've had death threats on social media. I've had online campaigns by right-wing politicians that have required security and police patrol from my house. So there are multiple sides of it. You have to be smart. You have to use it wisely. You have to uh, protect yourself. So in terms of what you're sharing and how you're sharing and who you're sharing it with, uh, but ultimately asking yourself why you're sharing, right? So there are people who'd use it as, okay, well, I woke up, I made myself a cup of coffee and here's my breakfast and look, I'm gonna fold this laundry and I'm gonna walk to work. There's people who do that and to each their own. Um, but it's really a question of why are you using it? And so I'm a big believer of 
taking the proverbial mic. I'm literally taking holding the mic right now. But um, growing up, I was frustrated because there wasn't anyone who looked like me on television or in media. There was nobody who I, I always dreamt of being a journalist since I was seven years old, and there was literally nobody who looked like me um, growing up. And so when I had the opportunity to use social media to actually tell my story as a visible Muslim woman, it was so incredibly empowering because all of a sudden, the stories weren't being told about us. They were being told by us. And I think that is so powerful when it comes to social media use is the ability for, we're talking about Muslim women, so I'm gonna to stick to Muslim women, but being able to create these incredible businesses online. There are so many incredible women entrepreneurs who are Muslim, who, who identify as Muslim, who are just killing it, just doing such an amazing job and thanks in large part to social media. So it's important to balance the, the pros and the cons, but there is tremendous power um, at our fingertips. Yes, I agree. Like in the women that I study, they they are mostly using it to set up businesses to, you know, small scale businesses, but still they, they have like really, and because I study my own community, which is a diasporic community. So they're really using Instagram to connect across the diaspora and kind of maximize the impact of their businesses. Yeah, I can I can jump in um, and yeah, maybe take it in, in a slightly different direction. But I, I really love this question about um, kind of what's going on when we bring uh, bring our offline activities online and, and what are the ways that our use of media might change that. Um, and, and so uh, I have three different examples from uh, from my research that I thought were really interesting in relation to this, but to kind of highlight two of the, the sort of broad themes in response to that. One is that, um, you know, people, you were just talking about a diasporic community and, and, you know, in general, people who find themselves in a minority community and sometimes kind of a minority within a minority or, you know, several different layers. Uh, in my research, I was looking at uh, Muslim feminist writers. So they were people who uh, existed in communities where people, the people around them had a lot of different opinions and some agreed with them and some didn't. Um, and when I think about the, the bloggers of Muslim Media Watch as well, uh, you know, we were a group of the number fluctuated, but say 20 writers from 10 different countries. Um, and we didn't necessarily have local communities around us. Like there wasn't an offline equivalent actually of, of some of the work that we were doing um, that we needed to be reaching out to people who were in places that we could only access through digital media. Um, so there's a, a, a way that this space is created um, online that, um, that doesn't have an offline equivalent necessarily. Um, and that even in stories, so even, even in moments where what's being shared on social media is something that uh, you know, is a kind of narration of, of something that happened offline. There's often something interesting that's happening to it as it comes online. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite uh, moments in doing my research was um, one blogger called Nahida. Her blog was called The Fatal Feminist. Um, she, uh, so 
she, like many Muslims, uh, prays regularly. And in order to do that, you do uh, wudu ablutions uh, first. And in order to do that, there's, there's various uh, conditions. Um, many people believe that uh, if you're wearing nail polish, that that's a kind of a barrier to doing the ablutions. And I, I want to just preface all of this by saying that there's lots and lots of diversity of opinion on everything that I'm saying. Um, but, and, and this was also slightly before uh, water permeable nail polish became a thing, which was like a whole new conversation. But anyway, pretend that doesn't exist. Um, so uh, so that, that becomes a barrier. For a whole bunch of complicated religious legal reasons that again are, are contested, um, blood uh, breaks uh, your state of ablution. So if, if you're bleeding, that breaks it. And so if you are on your period, you um, frame differently, kind of get a break from the obligation to, to pray during that time. So uh, all of that to say that for some Muslim women, they only wear nail polish while on their period, because then it doesn't really matter whether they can, um, doesn't matter whether it's breaking their, their abortion. Um, I'm really sorry for anyone whose cover I just blew on that. Um, and Nahida uh, told a story on her blog of being in a conversation with a friend. Um, the friend was wearing nail polish and the friend's mother was like, why are you advertising that you're on your period? Nahida was kind of like, well, like that's not a thing to be ashamed of. That's not a problem. People have periods, like that's a thing. Don't worry about it. Um, so she kind of said like, yeah, okay, I'll advertise that I'm on my period. And so she she set out to do this as a monthly thing. She did it like three or four times, but she would post a picture of her hands, of her, her beautifully painted nails uh, every month or so. And it it became a way just of, of wanting to make public um, conversations that are sometimes seen as like, eh, maybe don't talk about that. You know, but the thing is, so you could say, okay, she's just posting a picture of her hands, you know, that's like, her hands were painted, she, she posted that picture. But she never posted pictures of her hands when, when her nails weren't painted. It wasn't that, you know, we saw her hands every day as readers of her blog, and then we could say, oh, this is what's happening. She was making really specific decisions about when to bring the offline online, and, and these specific moments of what to show and when to show it. Um, and, and I think, you know, there are sort of more subtle examples of people doing that as well, but I think, it was this really interesting moment of, um, you know, that again, that it's it's not so simple that you can just say, well, is this thing going on offline? And she just brought it online. Uh, another of the bloggers that I looked at, her name's Ifi Okoye, um, created a photo blog uh, focusing on women's spaces in mosques. There was later an, another blogger, Hindmaki, who created uh, another very similar photo blog. And, and you might have, that one has had more attention. You might have heard of um, or if, if you're thinking, no, that she wasn't the photo blog person. Anyway, there's two of them. Um, Evie's was slightly earlier. Um, and for her, you know, so it was people taking pictures of these offline spaces that they're in and putting them online. But many women's prayer spaces are off limits to men. And so she was finding in some of her, um, again, there's lots and lots of diversity within Muslim communities. Um, but but in, in many cases, that's that's the way it is. She was finding that in some of her advocacy within her own communities to say, can we make things a little bit bigger, a little bit better in the women's section? 
uh, the men were saying, no, 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 it's fine. And she was saying, well, how would you know? And then she was kind of thinking like, yeah, how would they know? Like, they, they have no reason to speak without that knowledge and they shouldn't be making claims they can't back up, but also they don't have, have that access. And so posting these pictures of that space became a way of really strategically bringing online some of these offline spaces. Um, yeah, I'll save my third example actually for, for later on. I'll give someone else a chance to start. Um, so I'm gonna give you one example of um, how social media unfortunately can sometimes exacerbate um, a situation for someone who's already been attacked for being a Muslim woman. Um, last year, we launched our Hate to Healing social media campaign in which we featured 15 um, individual expressions of um, the experiences of hate, uh, racism, uh, Islamophobia, that women across Canada experience. So there's 15 different women um, and um, we have videos of them telling their stories. Uh, the stories are interesting because they, they start off with the incident that, that happened or if it was a gradual process, what it was like for them to be experiencing Islamophobia over time. Uh, everything from elementary school to the workplace to the the park where your children go to play. So one of the features we had was um, an amazing and impactful, very poetic telling of uh, Noor Fadel's um, experience with, uh, with Islamophobia. She, uh, you've probably heard the story told many different times. Um, and she tells the story or the experience that she had of being attacked on the sky train in Vancouver, where, um, you know, she was harassed, she was assaulted, she was sexually abused on the train, you know, in broad daylight, because she was wearing uh, a headscarf, because she was visible, she was wearing a beautiful red coat that she was very excited to wear. Um, so she, you know, she talks about that experience in this video, but then what her experience was after this physical uh, incident was that when she decided that she was going to talk about this incident online, um, she was attacked more viciously because the attacks became, uh, first of all, you know, if any of you post on social media, you know that when you say something, uh, that something negative that happened to you, people deny that that happened to you, that there's racism, that there's Islamophobia. So they automatically deny you that experience. And then they start harassing you and calling you names and being very abusive. So, so she was re-traumatized. First, she was traumatized physically in person. And then she said the trauma that she experienced online uh, through social media was far more debilitating for her because you know there were these platforms where she could be herself, she could you know express her poetry, her art, but suddenly that space was taken away from her because of the attacks that she experienced, and because the trauma occurred in that space, it took her a very very long time to have the courage to talk about it. And, and distinguish between that physical experience that she had and then what happened online. 
So that's just a very concrete example. I mean, there are many others that I, I could share with you, but I wanted to, to think about that. So oftentimes the opposite is true. You know, um, a, a crazy person who's a white supremacist, you know, neo-Nazi who's plotting online um, and has been doing this for a very long time, consuming hate online. And then that person goes out and acts out on the street or that even murders people. So in this other example that I was citing was um, a real life thing that happened to a, a lovely Muslim woman who I, I would say it initially even robbed her of her identity because she did express her identity through the hijab. She did wear it. Later, she took it off because of what had happened to her uh, in the physical act of ripping it off and assaulting her and so on. And then she expressed what happened to her online. And um, I, I think you should watch her video. It's available on our daretobeaware.ca website, uh, where all the 15 videos are posted. They're accessible on YouTube. Uh, and and you'll, you'll sort of see what her journey was like. Thank you. So um, if I could contribute to this idea or question about um, offline activities and bringing them online. Um, I could pinpoint a specific example, which would be in the lead up to um, the tabling of Bill 21. And uh, in the lead up to that, um, to, to the tabling of the bill, um, we knew that the CAC was planning this. Um, they had announced as part of their platform that this is one of the first things they wanted to do. And um, so what I did was I actually interviewed a Muslim woman in uh, the FAMCO group, the informal network that um, was online on Facebook actually. And um, I, I gathered their testimony. So they actually wrote out their testimony of how they were experiencing this whole debate around um, secularism, how it was affecting their lives. Uh, so I was able to gather their testimony and I actually co-wrote a brief with the Fédération des Femmes du Québec, uh, which we submitted during hearings, public hearings on Bill 21. And uh, their testimony was part of that brief. And I actually included their testimony in little clips. I kind of created tweets in the lead up to um, our, our time on uh, at the National Assembly. Um, and I had kind of like a, a schedule of tweets to kind of share some snippets of that testimony with uh, the people using social media. Um, so that's one way that I was able to kind of use social media to bring some offline experience to the online um, sphere, um, which I think was important in the lead up to that whole, um, the implementation of Bill 21, because I think a lot of people didn't really understand the impact of all this debate on the place of religious minorities in Quebec on the lived experience of, of those minorities. I think people, it was a bit of a, a black box for people. They didn't really understand. Um, so yeah, that's uh, just from my own um, activities and, and mobilization, uh, some of the ways that I kind of used um, or tried to capture some offline experiences of uh, Muslim women in that informal group, uh, Femcor, uh, to kind of put it on social media and 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 get that uh, online. I will say, and I think uh, Fariha actually mentioned it, and a couple other people mentioned it, is that um, once you do bring some of those offline experiences online, 
um, there are trolls, there are trolls. Um, and I think um, I've experienced it once. Uh, I'll briefly mention that um, I was once on a panel for Amnesty International in Quebec. And um, it was quite a heated panel, it was quite a heated debate. And one of my one of my quotes was clipped and put into this conspiratorial video um, about le grand remplacement, and I was part of some sort of secret um, conspiracy to to implement some sort of great replacement. And um, Matthew Bocoté wrote about me, and there was a whole pile on online. And um, so, so once you do start to bring those offline experiences online, I think it is worth warning people or mentioning that um, some of the backlash can be quite vicious and um, and that it's worth preparing for. Yes, so thank you all if you like, you know, this is the thing that is why I kind of put in potentials and pitfalls both because they being this visible presence on social media and identifying as Muslim, whether even you're wearing the hijab or not, brings a lot of consequences and a lot of weight to that online presence. Um, I, I read about this, this was like that the ideal Muslima is a very much figure on social media, right? She's put up as this pious, subservient, sacrificial woman. And if Muslim women dare to deviate from that vision in any way, then she is ostracized, harassed, and it all though often opens doors to these kind of, you know, hate and very much Islamophobic sentiments that happen on social media. And so kind of leading on from that question, I want to ask this one is that, what do you think is that Muslim women often on social media, they face this burden of representation, right? They, they have to, and then it becomes extended to a hyper fixation on the hijab, whether you're wearing it properly, not wearing it. And this all brings in a lot of emotional, physical labor and for online content. And so I would like, like to hear your personal comments on that or from the perspective of the organization. I'm just gonna jump into this one. I unfortunately have a lot of experience with this. Um, so both on social media, as well as on television, um, being held as, so I'm the first woman to wear hijab on television in Quebec history. And that's something I'm incredibly proud of, but it's something that's given a lot of people um, leeway to make comments and to judge me and to judge my faith and judge what I wear, criticism of my lipstick is too bright, um, my pants are too tight, or just comments that are have no place, like there's nothing of relevance, nothing of importance, but people choosing and feeling that they have the right to criticize me as a woman, as a woman of color, as a Muslim woman, and as a visible Muslim woman. And so that is something I've dealt with tremendously a lot. And then, and, and I mean, I guess one of the hidden tools of social media is I've blocked, reported people who have really come after me for the way that I look and how I'm dressing, if I'm interviewing a, a man, how close I am to him. Um, things that are just of no relevance, but people feel that they, these keyboard warriors who can sit at home and you know type and these awful things because they're protected by their screens and you know user 248 
Um, but this is such a reality that a lot of women, Muslim, a lot of Muslim women have to deal with. Um, and it's something that I talk about often online is that I'm a public figure, but it doesn't mean I, I'm still very much private. There's parts of me that I don't share online and I'm fully within my right to do so. But you can't judge a person or a faith based on how an individual dresses. And this goes for anybody of any faith, of any denomination. It's um, there's so much more to an individual. And so I think that social media really blurs those lines of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. If I'm walking down the street, I can guarantee you, I won't have someone stop me and tell me your lipstick is too bright. Your, your shirt is too tight. They won't say that, but online, apparently people think they can do stuff like that. So it's, um, it's part of the journey of sharing, of being online, uh, realizing you're unfortunately are going to receive more of that, but then you use the tools, you, you report, you block, you get on with your day. So that's a really interesting question about um, how we are uh, viewed, you know, as oppressed, as downtrodden, uh, waiting to be saved. Um, but like I said earlier, you know, we are way more than what we wear. And, you know, one of the things that we at CCMW try to do is um, show, because, you know, they, they say that, um, when you're telling a story, when you're writing a novel or, you know, short story, the key is to show through your words um, what you want to, to say. So showing on words can mean, you know, being very descriptive about what's going on, how people are feeling, behaving, what the scene was like, um, what was happening in the scene. So for us, it's really important to not just have things in words, but also show. So we like to see Muslim women interacting in the community. Um, you know, we, we like to showcase their work so we can show, in fact, that they are more than what they're wearing. Um, because, you know, God has endowed us with uh, a mind. You know, human beings are distinct because they have minds. And we have to value every single mind that is able to function and contribute that, you know, that mind and what's in it uh, to society. And that's where we should be. We should be valuing what they think, uh, what they study, what they, whether they practice a profession or a trade or, you know, are artists. We need to show that. And that's what we focus on at CCMW. Because frankly, we are really, really tired of the hijab debate. We don't want to talk about it anymore. I'm bringing it up just because everybody, it, everybody talks about it. But the important thing is that if you want to counter that narrative that we're oppressed, you know, that we're downtrodden, that we're stepped on all the time. And in fact, you know, because we come from a patriarchal society, which is actually not true, because in, in my reading of the Quran, it's not patriarchal. It's very egalitarian. So, you know, these things are imposed on us, and then we're there to, we're left defending it. But why should we defend, you know, who we are? We should be able to show people who we are. And that's really what the focus of CCMW is, and I'm hearing that from each of you, that you've seen you yourself are making that happen. 
and and you've seen other Muslim women do the same, and that's where our focus should be. Thanks. Just to kind of sorry, add to that, and then I'll get to you, Adil, too. That you know, this the reason you talk about this, and it was um, another blogger, a Muslim blogger, Mahreen Kasana, who. She saw that what so many of us see that when Muslim women go online, they are treated as anthropological projects, right? Objects of fascination. And so she got together with a lot of other bloggers from Bangladesh and they created a blog called Oppressed Brown Girls Doing Things, <laughs> which was just using humor and popular culture to kind of counter these narratives and remove the hijab as a topic of conversation. And so, Edel, I think you've had some experience with this too. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, with the burden of representation, I think um, you're absolutely right. There is more of that burden placed on Muslim women, I would say. And um, what I've noticed online is that um, there's a hype, there's a, a, a really stiff critique that Muslim women face um, when they don't kind of conform within what um, what their audience or what what their community believes is the correct way they should be representing themselves online. I've seen videos from Muslim women um, kind of apologizing for removing their, their headscarf or trying to explain it. Um, and um, I've seen uh, harsh critiques from Muslim men about um, the attire of Muslim women online. And what concerns me in that is I feel, um, I, I, you know, through my work, through my advocacy, I really always wanted Muslim women to feel empowered to have a voice and, and speak on their own behalf. I think that's what I tried to do in the lead up to Bill 21 and in other ways as well. And so it concerns me when I feel that Muslim women are their their dress is policed in such a way as to diminish their ability to um, to have a strong standing in society and to speak uh, and be taken seriously. I think that uh, concerns me. And um, I think uh, I think one way I've tried to combat it personally is um, my my own relationship with with. Uh, religious attire or the hijab has been quite um, interesting. You know, I, I kind of, uh, I'll wear like an African head wrap or I'll um, wear a bandana or wear like a little uh, kind of Hermes type scarf or I'll uh, wear, I'll, I'll wear all sorts of things. Sometimes I won't wear any headscarf or nothing covering my hair. And I never explain, you know, um, I'm almost like the queen, never complain, never explain, you know, um, but uh, I, I've made it a point never to explain. And I think um, it's been interesting kind of the media's because I, I, I take a lot of media interviews in regards to issues affecting Muslim women. And um, and I never explain to them either. I never I never offer any uh, sort of uh, contextual commentary. I just, you know, I take the interview and that's it. And um, I think I think that's healthy in a way, because I think um, to be reduced to kind of what you're wearing and to have such a heavy burden of representation as if there's a straight line between what you're wearing and what's on the inside is just it's not um, it's not healthy. And I think um, I think for me, my own religious conviction, I'll speak, speak more per personally right now, is that um, 
you know, my understanding of, of the prophetic tradition of Islam is that, um, you know, there's, there's incidences where on, on the battlefield, um, a member of the opposing army would uh, claim to become a Muslim and the prophet would say, don't fight that person anymore. Meaning that just a profession of faith was enough to include you in that protection of Islam. And so um, given that sort of very, um, very magnanimous and very, um, very uh, cosmopolitan and inclusive um, kind of conception of the ummah and nowadays to see how restrictive um, some people want to make it and how how much they really want to police what is a Muslim. It, it for me, it doesn't jive with my understanding. And um, I think I think um, certain conservative and certain um, sexist, quite frankly, um, dynamics have been kind of used to really diminish the uh, ability of Muslim women to to really shed some of that burden of representation and really just take their place and be able to to affect change um, and and to be to be really empowered in their position. So hopefully, hopefully, I don't know. I, I'm doing my little in my little little corner by not explaining anything and just doing what I want. Hopefully, maybe that's a little uh, drop of water in the right direction. Hopefully. Thanks. I mean, I I think that a lot of what I am going to say is going to to repeat uh, what other people have said. But I mean, I think first just to to highlight how exhausting this is for for so much attention to go on this. Um, fairly recently, I I completed a three year research project looking at Muslim Sejab students in Quebec and. Something that came up so much in that research was that whether or not the person wore hijab, it took up so much space in how people saw them and how they saw themselves. You know, for, for the people who wore it, it was a little bit more, more obvious what that meant in terms of, you know, just being the Muslim in the class, you know, sometimes one of a few, but sometimes the only one and being looked to to explain things about Islam and, you know, to, to be the one who uh yeah who's asked to speak for all two billion muslims that kind of thing um you know or who of course is is much more vulnerable as a target of of hate in all kinds of forms uh but for the young women we spoke to who didn't wear it um in particular those who also weren't uh, either south asian or arab so uh the and and in particular i'm thinking of of one black woman we spoke to there was sort of an assumption of, you know, well, obviously this person's not Muslim. And that opened up a whole new can of worms, you know, sometimes in relation to other Muslims, sometimes in uh, in relation to non-Muslims, but, you know, people saying Islamophobic things around them uh, without realizing that there was a Muslim person there. And, um, you know, we're always sort of having this, this question of like, do I out myself as a Muslim because someone's been assuming that I'm not? And, you know, what are the different sort of risks in doing that? And um, especially when it's been made clear, this is not a safe space. And and so just the amount, um, I think, Italy, you kind of talked about just the the burden and the work involved in dealing with all of this. And and just that that, that is something that's so... Uh, so present in, in different ways and that has just become so heavy. 
um, when I was uh, writing and then editing with Muslim Media Watch, I mean, we just got so bored of it. Like it kept coming up. There's so many, you know, the, the same stories get repeated all the time and we're trying to respond to them, but we're also like, I don't know, I don't have anything new to say. And you know, that like dozens of, of headlines that we found, I'm sure there were maybe more than that every year that had something about like beyond the veil and behind the veil and this like tired, tired cliche that kept coming up, but it's, it's just something that, that is really relentless. And, um, and we really actually sort of made the decision of like, unless you have something new to say, like, let's, let's just like ignore the hijab stories. And, you know, sometimes that works, but sometimes, you know, sometimes even though like we don't care we don't want to talk about it it is the story that's getting the most attention and you're like okay i guess i have to respond to the hijab thing again um you know but i think so many of our so many of our blog posts and and other kinds of engagement about it you know started off with like i can't believe i'm writing this like i can't believe like here we are again um and and it really um yeah is is hard to hard to convey kind of how tired we are of it and um and and how the uh, the amount of space that it takes up and I, I don't mean of course to I don't mean to take away from the importance that wearing hijab can have as an act uh you know of the person who who is wearing it um but yeah the importance that is given to it is so disproportionate and and really and I think this is also really important takes away from so many other discussions that we do want to be having. And I think that's where, um, that's, that's the other piece that, uh, that sometimes gets, um, even in the kind of, okay, I guess I have to address the hijab right now sort of moment. Um, you know, it's easy to feel that sense of obligation, but it does mean that like, okay, right now my attention's going there and it's not going to all these other directions that, you know, actually really could use my attention a lot more. Yes, yeah, so thank you. Like I, I heard your talk last week on which you mentioned, Krista, that one of your female students, they, she said that it was exhausting, right? Mm -hmm. Constantly having to defend yourself and defend everything. Um, I came across this statistic that um, a bibliography of all the research produced on Islam in Canada in 2017 shows that out of 250 article chapters and thesis, 90 focus on hijab as a central topic or analytical focus. And what this does, the consequences of this, is it flattens Muslim women, right? And it the focus and the hijab as a lens, it reinforces all of this hypervisibility and stereotypical assumptions, and then subsequently as a threat to multiculturalism, to laicity. And so with that, um, I would now like to open to questions, both from the audience and online and in person. Um, So I think, yes, we have in person for the online one. All right, so let's go with the online one first and then we'll go. So Ali Smears asks, several of you have discussed the reality of preparing oneself for trolls and online hate 
as well as using specific social media tools like blocking and reporting. I study Instagram and I am interested in the possibility that the app allows for you to turn off comments on a post that you make. Can this be a potential strategy to sidestep hate speech, at least in the comments section? Or do you see this as hindering or censoring discourse and potential connective and positive connections? Are there other, other self-protective strategies that you have found built into the technology? Um, I'll jump into this because I've dealt with uh, quite a lot of uh, hate speech and I'm just gonna be really frank about this. Nobody owes anybody anything. So people feel that like, okay, if you're a public figure or if you're whatever role you have, that somehow you have to speak for all Muslims. If you're visibly Muslim, you have to speak for all Muslims. You have to speak a bit for all, all of whoever it is, whether it's, a I'm a child of immigrants. So I have to speak for all children of immigrants. And there's this responsibility and this onus that's placed. And the fact of the matter is I don't, nobody does. And it's how are you? What you said about not not showing, not giving an explanation? Because frankly, you don't have to. You do you, and I think that that's really important. Because the same thing with online. I love having healthy debates, healthy conversations, and I have a lot of those online and offline. If someone speaks to me from a place of respect, I will have I will speak to you till I'm blue in the face. I will happily engage in a conversation. But the reality is, I don't owe that to anybody. And none of us owe that to anybody. So there have been times where I have turned off comments on an Instagram post or a Facebook post. In fact, um, City News Montreal has made an editorial decision to turn off all comments. And that was a really big deal because our safety was being threatened and people were attacking one another in the comments, which was very unhealthy and very toxic. Um, so yes, people can turn off the comments if you feel that's going to protect you, by all means. Um, ultimately, you can choose to answer whatever you want to answer or not answer whatever you choose to not answer. But I think people need to understand a little bit more that nobody owes anybody anything. I mean, you're there. Um, if it's your job, then perhaps it's a little bit different. If you're employed to do something, perhaps a little different. Um, but that's something that I learned the hard way. <laughs> Um, as a blogger and dealing with a lot of questions and people just making me a Muslim expert. Why? Because at the time I was the only visible Muslim woman speaking on media or speaking um, uh, publicly about certain issues to do with Muslims. And so there's this onus of responsibility. And I think that's something we have to really just get rid of. You want to help have a healthy conversation by all means, have a healthy conversation. You don't owe anybody anything. Um, um, so do I have any strategies? I mean, um, you know, I'm being very open. I think um, one of the wonderful things about this forum is that we're, we're being asked to pull from our own personal experiences um, because usually people ask me about um, the issues and I don't really discuss sort of how I figure into that. But um, what I can say is my strategy is not to post anything. <laughs> my strategy is silence. So, um, you know, it's interesting, my, my Instagram, um, you know, I, I got my little blue check when I, when I created the party, the political party, and um, so, and, and on Facebook as well, and I, so I have these platforms that people know if they want to find out what I think about something, they can go there, 
um, but I'm, I'm rarely posting. It's actually privated. And um, usually when I want to com communicate about an issue, I'll use traditional media. I'll use traditional media. I'll uh, write an op-ed for the Globe or I will, um, you know, uh, speak to CBC or I will communicate in that way. And I think um, social media, it's a tool, it's available, it's there if you want to use it. Um, I think there's probably people that are way more adept at using it than I am. I use it very strategically when I want to mobilize or when I want to uh, communicate information to a specific group of people. Um, but there's also the option to to just not uh, use it. I know it's kind of, it sounds like retreating from, from the, from the uh, public sphere, but I think a strategic retreat or a strategic silence can be useful sometimes, um, you know, whether it's turning off comments or um, whether it's um, kind of using just the traditional media channel and not necessarily posting onto your personal page and attracting all the trolls over there. Um, I think uh, my strategy for better or for worse has been uh, silence. So at uh, CCMW, one thing that we have done is provide a, um, a workshop on countering cyber hate. Uh, and there we actually go through all of the ways that you can protect yourself on each of the platforms. And we also give some tips on whether to answer or not. Um, and what you should do if you do decide to answer, like what are the steps you can take to protect yourself. Um, and it's really quite useful because people have to think, you know, before they post or before they respond or block. But you have those options available to you. But um, it's really interesting, the distinction between intervening or, or acting, you know, as you're acting when someone attacks you in person versus when that happens online. I think there's a little bit more flexibility online in terms of protecting yourself. Um, you know, you can change settings on each of those platforms. You can take a deep breath, step away and decide whether you want to respond or not. Um, so it, whereas, you know, if you're attacked physically somewhere, it's very scary and, and you are immobilized and um, you don't have a moment to think about how to react and respond. But online you do and taking that time is really, really useful. And then, um, you know, at CCMW, we, get, we do get those negative comments to materials that we post. And we think seriously whether we should respond or not. Um, oftentimes we don't because the commentary is so ugly that if you are countering it with facts, you know, um, or you know evidence, they were not going to consume it anyway. Um, they'd rather just spew hate. So you you have to make that decision. And remember that when you decide to engage like that, the energy that has to be expended in thinking through what you're going to say may not be worthwhile either. So that's our, those are, that's part of our course actually, if you wanna check it out. Yes. Yeah, so I, I just want to add on to kind of this that my very first experience with this kind of online hate came when I published my first op-ed in September. And surprisingly for me, it didn't come on Twitter, it came on LinkedIn. <laughs> but the thing was that I am not required to engage. And so blocking is like the easiest strategy because the thing to understand is that 
for myself, for many other Muslim women too, these are spaces for building community, for building connections. And so why not make use of these platforms and the kind of affordances they offer us for blocking and reporting to make sure that we protect our emotional and mental health? And so, yes, so I think let's move on to a question from the audience in person first, and then we'll do one online. Thank you. Well, this is a related question. Um, you've all answered the question about facing harassment and individualized settings on each various platform. What role do the platform owners themselves uh, have in preventing it? Because every answer seems to be decide whether you want to engage, try to value your own energy, uh, if they're not responding, they, they probably don't want there to learn anyway. It seems that the ultimate goal of harassment is to discourage public participation, to discourage people from being able to have any kind of public life unless it's one that fits, fits a very specific demographic. <laughs> so my question is anyone who allows public, quote unquote, discussion online, uh, I know it's not directly related, but how would you perceive of their responsibility in protecting their users? That's a really good question. Um, and it's, it's, it's one that's very frustrating. Um, it's something that I've dealt with. I've dealt with uh, a massive right-wing attack against me uh, with thousands, tens of thousands of people. Um, and turning, having to go to the police station and share emails of screenshots and doing everything I can. Um, and the police said, well, a direct threat was not made. Yes, this was a public figure who used their, their audience to send hate my way, but they didn't directly threaten me. Um, that was a police's response. Okay, well, what, what role does Twitter have? Because it started on Twitter, then it went to Facebook. And the answer is none. Like, they might want to convince us otherwise, but the reality is it's, it's, it's nothing. And it's very unfortunate that we participate in these platforms, we build these audiences, but at the end of the day, we're not protected. So um, I've, I've dealt with that and it's a horrible feeling. Um, even I've left groups that have been moderated by certain individuals in which I was being attacked for my faith. My faith was being attacked. I was being attacked personally. And I would report this to the moderator of those groups would say, well, you know, they, they are free to express themselves. And I'm, well, I'm being threatened here. I said, well, you can choose to stay or you can choose to leave, but we're not going to be removing the comment. Um, so I've dealt with this uh, more than I wish I had to. And it's terrible. So in, the, in those instances, I, I left those groups. But the onus of responsibility, speaking as a Muslim woman, pretty much falls on our shoulders of, okay, well, if you don't like it, then you leave. But unfortunately, these platforms are not protecting us. Um, I was just gonna say that that's probably the biggest challenge that we have, because remember that these platforms are private businesses. They have business models that uh, reward them for creating anger uh, and discontent, the, ang the more angry making posts 
you have, the greater your advertising revenues. And then there are the algorithms. So you know, we can be saying things about the role of these platforms and these companies till we're blue in the face. And even when the government introduces legislation to regulate them, there's such a lot of debate about what the expectations of the platforms should be because there's a huge debate raging between the advocates for freedom of expression and uh, advocates for justice and equality who are experiencing the hate. And honestly, I am not that hopeful that any forthcoming legislation is going to be able to address, um, address this well. And I don't know if you've seen some of the policies that these platforms post that are, you know, they're anti-hate policies. They sound great on paper, but they are not showing us anything in terms of their commitment to controlling hate speech online. A really good example is what Elon Musk has just done. So yeah, he's a billionaire and he, and he can do it because no one is going to come after him. Um, and, and I think that's our, our challenge. So if anyone has got any ideas and solutions <laughs> in terms of advocating for change so that those, you know, that's why I, I started to boycott Facebook and Twitter because of the hate that happened when, you know, during the election of uh, Donald Trump. But I'm, uh, you know, one measly user. And then people have debated whether they should leave Twitter now that it's become open to hate mongers again. But then some people have said, no, I have to be there because my voice is important. I'm countering that hate by being there. However, don't expect the platforms to do anything because you'll take away their ability to make billions more. Yeah, I think to, to, to build on what Nazhat is saying, and, and I'm sorry that this is really a non-answer to your question, but... Um, is just that that uh, I mean, there's there's lots of things that I wish I could, you know, there's lots of things that I think they should do, um, but I think it's you know it long predates social media that especially people who are in any kind of marginalized or minoritized uh, or oppressed position uh, can't count on those in power to protect them. Just in general, um, it's that's not a social. I mean, it is a social media thing, but it long predates uh, social media. It's and and so I think, you know, we in some ways have to do with social media. You know, what communities have always done in kind of saying, given that those in power, whether that's the state, whether that's you know mainstream forms of media, um, you know, that they are not going to protect us, um, what do we do? How do we protect ourselves? Um, and, and I don't say that to say that there isn't a responsibility. It's just to say that um, there's not a good track record for there to be any reason to expect uh, much from, from that. Uh, I mean, I would like to think we could expect better than what's happening in Twitter like right in this moment, but uh, in general, um, yeah, that that it is uh, it is hard to respect. So you know, Faria Faria talked about uh, comment moderation policies as something, and I think that's you know that's an example of okay, 
we're using Facebook because it's strategically important in this particular way. How do we create, you know, within a particular Facebook group or on a particular Facebook page, an environment where uh, certain people uh, will be, you know, clearly shown the door and other people will therefore feel safer. So what are the, you know, what are the policies that we can have in place and have visibly, you know, in place that, you know, comments that are Islamophobic won't be tolerated, comments that are homophobic, transphobic, you know, and so on won't be tolerated, you know, and 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 to like really back that up, right? To and and to listen to the people who are saying, hey, this was a really problematic comment, this comment was violent towards me, do something about it. Uh, you know, because I think that's also something that happened, you know, even uh, pre-Elon Musk on Twitter, that people would flag comments and the people in charge of comment moderation wouldn't have the context to understand why this is a bad comment. So they'd say, oh, we didn't see anything violent. We didn't see anything that was wrong with it. Um, and, and it wasn't even necessarily that they had malicious intentions against whoever was uh, flagging the comment. They just, um, they didn't know. And again, it's not to excuse them, but it's just to say that um, that, that process is often really slow to, to catch up to it. So, you know, I do see a lot of value in being able to use social media to build communities and, and you know, to, to try and stay engaged and find ways of, of building community and finding community. And that is why I'm still on Twitter and Facebook. Um, you know, and being able to to connect with people and learn from people. Um, but in terms of, of, you know, what could we ask for? What could we expect? Um, yeah, just uh, I um, feels like the smartest thing to do is to keep our expectations low and to to think about how to keep ourselves safe, given uh, given what we know of how power works. So just commenting on this a bit as someone who's studied a little bit of platforms and things like that, is that platforms won't ever do anything about. And it is, I think that is also a testimony to kind of the resilience of these communities online who wish to sustain themselves. And because for many of them, there is no other option, right? For many of the people on Twitter, um, when it was like scheduled that it's going down somehow, so many people were sad at the fact that they would be losing the only communities they had taken years sometimes to build. These would be the interactions, the support kind of that they would lend each other, despite whatever the platform and its owners and its technology did, these women, these people, everyone sticks it out. That is why there are people still on Twitter kind of ignoring those things because for them, that community is more important, right? That is why also on social media, let's say Instagram, many women choose to be there, but they choose not to engage. They block the comments immediately and they just post what they want to because for them, it is an escape. For them, it is a way to make their voices heard and they do not have to engage. Like Faria said, it is not their responsibility to answer anybody. So um, let's take another question. Someone added or online. There is a question. Um, I think if we can scroll just a bit up on the chat. Who's 
see it's a very uh, a little bit. Of, yes. So do you think this hyper focus on the hijabs is due to most people's ignorance on this subject, or do you think it due to most people not really paying attention or understanding why women wear the hijab? Again, a question. <laughs> I think. Does anybody want to? I'm going to answer this uh, in a really okay. Please don't be offended. See the way I see um, the hijab debates. I actually center them around the control over women's bodies. So whether it's control over our reproductive rights or on our clothing, um, it's about controlling our bodies and defining us uh, in ways that um, that others want to define us. And and you know the the sad thing is that uh, women's bodies have always been a subject of of control. And if you can control those bodies, you can have power over them. So for me, it is really you know, wound up in that. Um, and of course, we, we must you know, acknowledge that many Muslim wear who choose to wear the, the hijab do wear it for faith uh, re reasons, for their own understanding of modesty in Islam. And that's wonderful. And Muslim women can, can express their modesty in any way that they feel comfortable in. However, when the state takes over control over your body through uh, dictating what you can and cannot wear, um, that becomes very controlling and you start losing your agency to be who you are. Um, and you, you start uh, erasing your, your identity, your capabilities, your confidence. Um, and women who wear it comfortably, who are confident about what they wear, whatever it is that they wear or not wear, um, you know, are, are asserting themselves to have control over their own bodies. And it is about choice. We, we can choose what to do with our bodies, how to cover them or not. Um, so, I think if we just sort of stay in the in this sort of realm of, you know, is it out of ignorance? Is it personally? That's that's how I look at it. I believe that it's about controlling our bodies, and it's a it's a much broader debate. It's not just about Muslims and Muslim women, um, and and we can just look at uh, history and see how women's bodies have always been commodified. They are taken advantage of for sensational reasons. I think the debates on hijab is part of that sensationalism. So, okay, that's it. I, I may have offended some people. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's really important for me to say that. Yeah, I, I would add to that just that, um, you know, in, in many cases, especially if, if we're looking, for example, at the all the different ways that hijab gets focused on here in Quebec is that, you know, it's also racism and it's also, uh, you know, it's, I, I think there's, um, I think the, the idea of thinking that, may, and maybe for some people, it's just that, yeah, there isn't enough understanding of why women uh, or anyone might wear hijab. Um, you know, maybe for some people it is kind of ignorance or it's a lack of understanding, but for, for other people, uh, that's um, 
that's too gentle an understanding of, of their reactions. I think that that for other people, it is, uh, you know, a sense of, you know, hundreds of years of thinking of Muslims in a particular way. It's, you know, the way that Muslims here get portrayed as, you know, in, in all sorts of ways as kind of threats. It was talking about the Quran Fasmal and the, those kinds of uh, images of Muslims coming here to take over whatever, um, you know, and and so it's it's racism, it's Islamophobia, and and those are both getting amplified by a lot of our politicians, by a lot of people in uh, in mainstream media, along with on social media, um, so that it's um, it's not just sort of simple ignorance; it's uh, people who have been fed certain information and and often you know wildly inaccurate information um, and and really simplistic information for you know for a long time that it it relates to um, to a really violent system and not just to kind of an individual ignorance. I think the way that just human beings function is that it's we just it's simpler for us to place people inside of a box and the moment that they don't fit in that box we start to panic like well how could you wear a hijab and also be this or be that or do this or do that and i think what's really important to understand is that there's intersectionality that exists so you can be a woman you can be a bipoc individual you can be a muslim woman you can be many things and they don't all have to make sense to the other person. And I think that's what people kind of forget. And they assume that, well, you're Muslim, so therefore you have to wear a hijab. Um, I'll give you an example. I have a 17 year old daughter and she does not wear a hijab. And she has known since she was very little that she the decision to wear one or not wear one will be hers and only hers. It's not something I'm going to impose on her. And that's probably one of the number one questions I, I get. I can't share anything about myself and my daughter without getting that question. Well, wait, why doesn't she wear a hijab? Or my sister, I'm the only one in my family to wear a hijab. And people say, well, wait, how, it, how come you guys are not dressed the same? It's because of that whole box mentality. People have to feel like, okay, well, you fit in this box that I've created for you. Otherwise, panic ensues. Um, I'll just add like a little a comment about um, representation because since we're the hijab is is rearing its head again. <laughs> so um, I just uh, have an interesting anecdote to share. I was actually having a conversation with a, a feminist philosophy professor at McGill um, named Aliyah Al-Saji. And she told me something interesting. She said that in Quebec, um, there used to be publications that would publish accounts from missionaries um, who were in uh, Muslim majority countries. So this is back in you know the 1800s, uh, you know, uh, long ago, and there would be very Orientalist types of depictions or accounts of that encounter with the other, at, who in those uh, stories was. 
um, you know, the Muslim woman or the Muslims in, in those countries where the missionary was. So these representations of Muslim women um, didn't sort of start with um, kind of migration in the 70s or uh, from North Africa. Um, it goes way back. So a lot of these stereotypes um, have an origin that's older than we, we might suspect. Um, so that was an interesting anecdote from, uh, you can look her up, uh, Aliyah Al-Saji. All right, um, I'm sorry, um, but we are almost out of time and I would really like to respect everyone's time. First of all, thank you so much, Krista, Fariha, Nozhat, Idil, for being here, for sharing your opinions, your experiences with all of us. I would also like to thank the Fort Space team for putting this event together for me. Thank you to the Public Scholars Program at Concordia, um, Joseph, Racha, Sepe, especially for all of your assistance in putting together this event. Um, I would also like to extend a very special thank you to my doctoral supervisor, Dr. Linda Clark, for all of her support and encouragement and for securing one of my panelists. Finally, a big thank you to everyone in the audience tonight, whether in person or online. I really appreciate everybody taking the time to be here. I also hope that you take away something profound from this table, which is why I would like to end with this. In 2015, a National Radio Canada poll found that 72% of Canadians agree that burqa or niqab are symbols of oppression and rooted in anti-women culture. In 2017, the same poll said that one out of four Canadians, nearly 23%, would favor a ban on Muslim immigrants. In Quebec, this rises to 32%. The same poll revealed that almost 51% people in Canada, and this is 57% in Quebec, felt that Muslim presence made them worried about their security. These numbers are assumed to only have gone up in these last five years, which is why this is necessary. It is clear what is needed. Thank you and have a nice evening. If you have an idea for a podcast, please let us know. You can contact us by email at info.4.concordia.ca or find us on social media at CU Fourth Space. We'd love to hear from you. The Fourth Space podcast is hosted by me, Douglas Moffat, and produced with Anna Vaklavec. Editing by Chanel Lees Marshall and Maximus Delmar. And our theme music, courtesy of Supercontinent. Thanks for listening.